You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Welcome to the International Catholic University. This is the first of a series of lectures on the logic of religion. Today I'll be working toward a nominal definition of religion. My name is Jude Doherty. I am Dean of the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America. I work as a professional philosopher in these lectures, drawing upon my experience, and as you follow me, you will draw upon your own experience. Religion is a very broad topic, and though most of us think we know what it is, I think we're faced, like St. Augustine, I know what time is until you ask me what it is, and then we find that we do not know as much without a kind of systematic reflection. These lectures are designed to be a systematic reflection on religion. And while there are eight lectures, the topic, I think, breaks down into four or five major parts. In the first lectures, I want, first of all, to provide a kind of nominal definition of religion in the sense of pointing to something. What is it that I'm talking about, at least in the beginning, so that we, we know what that is? Then we can get more sophisticated as we go along. I want to look first, not today, but in a subsequent lecture, at what the Greeks and Romans thought about religion. And then I want to move to religion after Christ. And then to the faith-reason problem as it emerges as Christians began with the use of classical learning to make the best or the most of their faith, I should say. There is then a faith-reason problem that we will look at with Augustine and Aquinas, then religion after the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, and then something happens in the West. There is the Enlightenment period, Anglo-French and German as separate movement, and we'll look at certain modern conceptions or interpretations of religion with people like David Hume and with Immanuel Kant, and then certain secular interpretations of religion which we encounter in the post-Enlightenment period with thinkers like Ritual and Schleiermacher, and on this side of the Atlantic with thinkers like John Dewey and John Herman Randall, Jr. We will then explore what religion means within the state, what it means within the culture, because we do have a stake in whether people are religiously motivated or not. We will see that in a few minutes. So I will talk at some point about the role of religion within society and draw upon the typically Anglo-American sources in that segment of these lectures. If time permits, we might look at 
various conceptions of the priesthood within religion. And I may have time to look at the story of one outstanding convert to Catholicism, a Jewish lady who discovers that one can be intelligent, learned, and religious at the same time. But now to a nominal definition of religion, if you will, and some of the problems we encounter as we look at religion, and again, I'm working as a philosopher, but off of experience, and my experience is fundamentally Western, it's Christian, it's Catholic. So the focus then of these lectures is religion in the commonly accepted meaning of the worship of the divine by man. Religion, I take it, consists in at least three things. A creed, a code of conduct, and a cult. If one is religious, one believes something. There is a body of doctrine that one has assented to in some fashion. And that involves a kind of intellectual assent. Now, what one is subscribing to is not only a speculative wisdom, so to speak, but usually religion entails a code of conduct so that we have religion providing one with a broad outlook, which gives one a frame of reference, but it also gives one specific outlooks. It commands behavior, so to speak. We'll see that in a minute. So I'm saying that religion consists in at least three things, a creed, a code of conduct, and a cult. By that I mean religious practices. Uh, perhaps none of these may be explicitly formulated or rendered in a sophisticated theology. Yet upon analysis, all may be seen to be ingredients of even the most primitive forms of religion. Now obviously one's general philosophical position colors one's attitude toward religion. As one begins to analyze religion from a philosophical point of view, there are at least three basic positions that one can take. That of the atheist, that of the agnostic, and that of the believer. These positions are hardly ever pure, if for no other reason that men have a difficult time remaining consistent. Thoroughgoing atheists are rare. There are few who philosophically argue that God does not exist. Most philosophers, if they do not maintain that God is, affirm that there is no evidence that he does exist. The believer, on the other hand, will affirm that God is, quite apart from evidence, though some believers may argue that their faith is well-grounded because it is corroborated by what we know to be the case independently of that faith, that is, from reason. A thoroughgoing atheist, if he has a taste for the enterprise, might interpret religion in the light of his purely materialistic or purely naturalistic categories. He might adopt a position to Schleiermacher or ritual. And no doubt, much of what he would have to say would be of interest to the believer. I mean, there are many philosophical analyses of faith, of Christianity, of Judaism, 
by people who don't believe at all. From any view, religion is a human invention, even though its object is God. Although the question, does God really exist, is an important one, it need not be solved to study religion. The question of God's existence belongs to the sphere of metaphysics. Granted, how one settles that question will determine one's attitude toward religion. If there is evidence that God does not exist, then the invention, the poetry of religion, if you will, is seen as merely satisfying some basic human need. We need poetry. Some people think we need religion the same way we need poetry. Others may regard the religious outlook as just nonsense. Some may regard it as a benevolent force in human affairs, others perhaps as a detriment to society. The American philosopher John Dewey, who has had a tremendous amount of influence on education at all levels in the United States, regarded religion as divisive, divisive in the sense that it divided man from a this-world concern to things otherworldly with the consequence that one did not pay enough attention to the affairs of this world. Dewey thought that religion was indeed harmful, particularly in the area of morality. And that philosophy of education, just practical aside, that caught on and we do have trouble even posting the Ten Commandments in this nation's public schools. Now, if our reflections on religion are of a philosophical sort and they're accurate, they should, in principle, be acceptable to both the believer and the non-believer. That is to say, if a philosophical position is neutral, it should allow that the assent to religious teaching makes sense and might in fact be rationally grounded. A philosophy of religion should not at least rule out the possibility of the rational foundation of belief. If it's close to the possibility that the believer may indeed have grounds for his assent, then it cannot take religious faith seriously and must regard the believer as someone who has failed to use sufficient intelligence or discretion in the placing of his commitments. If there is not at the outset of an inquiry such as this the conviction that belief might be rationally grounded, then the contrary attitude or outlook will certainly prevail, namely that belief is not rational. And if one begins with that supposition, then obviously religious belief stands in need of criticism in order to be replaced or revised in the interest of intelligent behavior. The social structures or institutions grounded on such beliefs, even though they may have benevolent effects to the non-believer or on shaky intellectual ground. Though I am arguing here that a certain neutrality ought to be the stance of one who sets out to investigate religion from a philosophical point of view, that neutrality need be a methodological one only, since the philosopher is a man who de facto is probably committed one way or the other before he even begins his investigation. The investigator's prejudgment in varying degrees may be manifested as he proceeds with his task, but his methodological neutrality should lead him 
in his own analysis to corrective measures. It should be axiomatic that neutrality is the condition of successful inquiry. Critical intelligence must be brought to bear on religion, but intelligence must be self-critical as well and need not proceed from any unexamined dogmas. One of the problems faced by those who would philosophically approach religion is the difficulty of talking about religion in the abstract. A common denominator to all that is designated religious is difficult to discern, and even where such identification is attempted, the product is frequently vacuous, if not meaningless. I know of no author who for long successfully talks about religion in a general way. Usually the focus is quickly shifted to Western religions and then narrowly to Christianity and Judaism perhaps with occasional references to Islam. So what I'm saying is that most of the literature generated in this discipline, and it's a relatively young discipline, is focused on Western religions, mainly Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Apart from the inability to keep all religious manifestations in mind, or the value of doing so, we usually don't have a stake in religion in the abstract. But Western man has a stake in Western religions because of the historical and continuing impact of those traditions. And he has to come to terms with them in a way in which he does not have to come to terms with religion more broadly defined. A philosophical analysis of the notion of religion must begin with the notion of belief. Religious belief is only one type of belief. We have beliefs about a lot of things. Most of the science we know is based on faith, on our belief that what we have learned in a high school classroom textbook or a college lecture course does in fact correspond to something. Very few, even practitioners of speculative physics, rarely have performed experiments which have led them to that knowledge personally. Most of what we accept in the sciences is accepted on belief. We accept most of what we know on the accounts of others. We might believe that Paris is lovely in the spring, unless perhaps we've been there, that there is such an entity as a DNA molecule, which is responsible for inherited traits, that Michelangelo is the author of the statue Moses. Few physicists have actually performed the experiments which lead to the inference of K and pi mesons, yet all would agree that propositions enunciating the reality of these things are propositions possessing at least a high degree of probability. We normally accept them as true. Now, belief is usually grounded, founded, in the sense that the believer has some reason for giving his belief, that is, for assenting. Conviction usually follows upon the presentation of evidence or testimony. That evidence or testimony has to be both internally consistent and consistent with what we already know from other sources. Some reports are customarily viewed with a great deal of suspicion. For example, we would not readily believe that someone has created an automobile engine with uh, an amazing ratio of efficiency 
or we might not readily subscribe to another program for the eradication of poverty, or we might not uh, believe that somebody has created a fail-proof method of teaching mathematics. Sometimes the language we use to report discoveries in the sciences is so full of metaphor that we really do not assent, or we don't readily assent, to the notion that there is such a thing as right-handed matter, or antimatter, or drops of electricity. Our curiosity might be aroused by such reports, but we generally withhold assent. And similarly with the reports issuing from the social sciences, which often contravene common sense, we withhold the assent. So too, now, in the domain of religious affirmation, we instinctively distinguish. While we might be able to understand the impulse which leads certain primitive tribes to uh, endow a fetish or a totem or the elements of nature with diverse properties, and we might even appreciate the beauty of some of those rites as reported by anthropologists, still we would be reluctant to regard those beliefs as well-founded. In matters of religion, we tend to discriminate between primitive cults and the great religions of mankind. Certain religions present themselves as credible, and we can understand why the informed and intelligent person might subscribe to their tenets, that is, become religious in a particular way. To return to my theme mentioned earlier, that religion is founded on belief in a god or gods, because our method here is to look at religion even before Christianity, even before the notion of God became refined as a result of the Hebrew scriptures and Christian commentary as we have it in the New Testament. A philosopher's analysis of religion then must begin with a study of the nature of the act of assent to certain principles or propositions, namely that there is a God. We have to accept certain propositions, and I think these can be reduced to three basic propositions. The way I find them articulated is that there is a God that reality consists in more than spatial, temporal, physical, and mental events. That history is guided and controlled by non-human forces. That individual existence does not terminate with the cessation of bodily processes. Now, assent to these propositions can be generated by philosophical considerations or result in a more or less gratuitous act of faith. Faith I am defining, for my purposes here, as the personal act of assent to propositions acknowledged to be true, but for which there is no evidence, scientific or otherwise. Faith may entail hope or trust in a person or an institution, but intellectual assent to some intellectually articulatable truth is primary. A religious act of faith, though similar to other acts of faith, differs in its object. Its object is God. 
and in the conviction that for at least some of its propositions, no evidence is forthcoming. Now, I don't want to deny, and we will see plenty of evidence for it when I discuss Greek and Stoic notions of religion, I don't want to deny that there can be a natural religion generated from purely philosophical considerations. But because philosophy is limited to a few, there will not be the necessary numbers to create a community of philosophical theists, if you will. A community of believers is required not only for religion to exist, but for it to maintain itself, to develop, and to exert a social and cultural influence. From the ascent to God's existence, then, or with a recognition of a superior power, which is in some fashion ultimately responsible for the course of natural events, certain things follow. If you believe that, then other things are entailed. Implied is a recognition of human dependence, human finiteness. An admission of dependence may lead to reverence and love of God. These attitudes will be expressed differently within different cultural contexts and with different degrees of sophistication. The degree of sophistication in the intellectual tools utilized by the believer will determine the character of the belief and the resulting religion. Religious bodies arise as men attempt to collectively worship or to pay homage to a recognized superior being. Most religions, even if primitive, seem to include as essential features acts of worship, including the offering of sacrifice, adoration and supplicative prayer, or other acts of worship commonly found. Within revealed religions, such as Judaism and Christianity and Islam, these common tendencies are more pronounced and are given a very definite form or structure. Now, it's evident that any community which regards itself as the repository of certain truths, that is, regarding divine things, must structure itself if it is to survive. Visible churches are the natural outcome of the religious community's attempt to perpetuate itself. The task which a religious community must undertake are many, but some are central. One function that seems to be universally acknowledged, a universal characteristic of all religious bodies, is that of worship. Worship is sometimes, but not always, bound up with sacrifice. In any case, a priesthood comes into being. Men are set apart who by public acts, by example, show the way, teach. They are the masters of rite and ritual. They lead a community of believers. So the definition, conservation, and development of doctrine is an important function, and I think is analogously found in all religious groups. There is need for a body of teachers who by office are selected for learning and holiness. It then happens that that body, call it a church, is of necessity an educator and its leaders consequently teachers, even when their primary function may be the direction of worship. 
the bodily welfare of the members of that society and of society at large is a concern only when you have a religious group. Uh, otherwise, it's personal charity, but religious groups do act in a charitable fashion. In the West, from biblical times on, religious groups have been concerned with the care of the sick, the homeless, the orphan, the widow. Christ himself taught that these are appropriate acts. Since worship requires ritual and suitable visible structures, the church may develop as a patron of the arts. Equally as important as the development of doctrine is the development of ritual. Doctrine will develop through dialectic. The fortunes of doctrine, the province of theologians, will rise and fall with the state of learning at the time. Theologians develop languages and methodologies in order to probe the depths of the faith that they have received. Theologies can be plural in number while remaining faithful to the basic deposit of the faith. Theology, or the language of theologians, can be subjected to philosophical analysis. Religious discourse can be submitted to analysis by logic, by formal semantics, one can ask, what are the logical structures of faith, the truth conditions of faith? We're trying to achieve a nominal, or perhaps you might call it a provisional description or definition of religion. To this point, I think we have pointed to several things. One, that religion presupposes assent on the part of the believer to a body of doctrine and that doctrine is both what we would call speculative and practical. That is, it consists in a way of looking at nature in relation to oneself, nature in relation to God, oneself in relation to God, putting things, as it were, in the broadest perspective possible. That's wisdom. But that wisdom entails also relating that to one's life. If one believes in the brotherhood of mankind under the fatherhood of God, then one may take a slightly different attitude toward one's neighbor than if he did not believe that. And similarly, if one believes that the grave is the end of man, then one prepares as if death is the end of it all. But if one believes in life eternal, in contemplative union with God, then one orders his life in a different way. So assent to a body of speculative truth for the religious mind also entails a morality, if you will. Now, another aspect is that religion appeals those truths, and especially as they come to us in Christianity, those truths generate not only an intellectual response, but also an effective response. One can relate to the person of Christ. One before, let's say, an image of Christ relates in an effective or in an emotional way. You can form a union with God through Christ. So religion, those body of truths that we're calling religious truths, appeals both to intellect and emotion. 
Another factor that we would like to stress is that if one assents, then one is led to certain types of acts. And we've just been talking about worship and what worship entails, namely a ritual, the offering of sacrifice. You don't do it just any way. You don't honor God you, uh, in just any way. We'll have more to say about that. But it entails then that type of act, the act that has to do with the temple. That is, things pertaining to worship have to do with the temple. But there are other acts too that were led to benevolent acts, personal charity, charity through the communion that we call the community of faith. So religion does in fact lead to action of various sorts. And then finally, if those basic truths are to be perpetuated, then they will be perpetuated only through instruction, that is, in a structured way through schooling of one sort or another, whether that be the daily schooling of the child, uh, university education. There is some schooling in matters of faith that is entailed by religion. You can't avoid it if it's to be perpetuated. Otherwise, it's just held in your breast and it doesn't become a force over a period of time. And in perpetuating that doctrine, we find that there are visible churches created with certain functions. Conservation of doctrine is certainly one of the most important ones. The creation of appropriate temples and rites and rituals is certainly another, and then the welfare role is there too. We're saying that religion entails all of those things. Now, ritual is very important in the practice of worship, and it will have its guardians, priests, and it will have its creators, artists. In the creation of ritual, the full scope of human inventiveness can be brought into play. We can see this if we look at the history of artifacts generated, let's say, from the time of Christ in both the East and in the West. Artifacts can be used minimally or lavishly. There's a difference between the Grand Baroque of 17th and 18th century Spain and the what we might call 19th century American Gothic. The difference is a matter of taste, a matter of culture. In ritual of necessity, many symbols, visual, spoken, and written, are employed. To understand their meaning and significance, one must enter into the mind and heart of the religious person. Here are so many philosophers who practice in what we call the ordinary language school of philosophy fail by taking language and symbol out of the context in which they're created and employed. The combination of doctrine, ritual, and personal contemplation can create, for the privacy of a few, a religious experience. But religious experience taken as a category or an object of investigation is almost meaningless. It dissolves when one tries to dissect it into its components. One cannot start with religious experience if one is to understand the religious mind, because the religious experience is an encounter with something objective. Religious symbols flow out of the doctrine, 
It's true that one doesn't have to be of a given religion to appreciate the artifacts generated by that religion. And similarly, one does not have to share a particular faith to contribute to the art or literature of that faith. We can think of Leonard Bernstein writing a mass. There have been many who have not been of a, let's say, of a Catholic faith who have nevertheless written grand masses for utilization within the church. But to understand symbol, one must understand it within the beliefs which form its matrix. And symbols can be uh, many, they can be multifarious, including everything from words to incense, they serve a variety of purposes. There's a certain refinement in the use of symbols. The ability to think analogically is said to be a mark of intelligence. Similarly, the religious way of symbolizing, of celebrating, and of marking passages of the seasons of the year is usually a very civil way and is similarly a mark of intelligence. People love pageantry, the occasion when the humdrum is replaced by splendor. Given the variety of minds, and should we say hearts to be reached, a plurality of symbols are required. And the reaching can be done well or not. It can be beautiful or not, elevating or not. At its best, Bernini's Colonnade or Michelangelo's David. At its worst, a dashboard crucifix or dime store Buddha. Symbols similarly can have levels of meaning. The crucifix can symbolize, same crucifix, Christ's instrument of torture, his death, and symbolize Christianity in general, one's faith commitment, among other things. And so too with the sacraments of the church. Baudelaire, who was no believer, wrote, and not without reason, that priests are servants and secretaries of the imagination. That's where symbol comes in. The master of symbol can lead one by appealing to one's imagination the imagination to intellect. A further comment on religious experience as a point of departure, it should be noted that there is nothing particularly religious in feeling feelings of contingency or dependence or in the awe felt upon the perception of the grandeur of the universe. Against David Hume, it could be argued that man is not by nature religious, that religion is rather culturally induced. Religion may be natural in the sense that primitive and not so primitive man have in fact drawn the conclusions that human events are contingent upon the forces of nature and that behind those forces there is a mind which ought to be acknowledged in worship and placated by prayer and sacrifice. But such naturalness is grounded on references commonly made from judgments. And if those judgments are not made, the inference is not drawn and the religious impulse does not follow. I think what I'm stressing here again is that there is a set of beliefs, a set of propositions, doctrine that can be formulated that is assented to, and that's the basis of religion in the individual. Now, there is a key question that we need to look at, or at least mention in the beginning, 
that whether religion stems from the non-rational aspect of the race or whether a human being's intellectual equipment leads him to acknowledge a fundamental dependence on a transcendent being. Those who seek to place religion on a rational footing affirm that either reason is in some sense forced to acknowledge a god or that belief makes sense even if God's existence is not rationally demonstrated. Those who deny a rational ground while still acknowledging the naturalness of religion place the origin of religion in man's emotional makeup. How one understands the emotions is of obvious importance. Do emotions follow perception or are they initiative of themselves? One's theory of religion is in some sense contingent upon one's theory of knowledge. Let me try to say that in a different way. Do we believe in God because of some felt need on our part, which acknowledging God, let's say, as a father, leads us to feel more secure about ourselves in a tumultuous world? Do we invent God out of kind of a felt emotional need or is there a ground for belief? We will deal with that question when we take a look at a modern interpretation of religion such as Sigmund Freud's, where the emphasis is placed on felt need rather than on a kind of discovered necessity. I am willing to argue that religion is more a matter of culture than innate disposition. On this view, religion is learned as everything else is learned. Think about your own experience of religion. Where did you learn to, uh, as it were, be religious? Or where did you acquire the fundamentals of your belief? It was probably at your parents' knee, so to speak, or in the early stages of your formal education. Religion is thus passed in a cultural way. But now, if there is little learning about things divine, and we see this as uh, people emerge from decades of being cut off from their traditions, such as in Eastern Europe or in China, for example, where there simply isn't any knowledge of what we would call the fundaments of the faith. Where that knowledge is not available, then the rest does not follow. If divine revelation is denied, if there is no known evidence for affirming the existence of God, if this becomes culturally acknowledged, then religion should disappear. Now, some are claiming that something like this is occurring in the United States as people become progressively illiterate in religious matters. Much practice simply is not taking place. Feelings of finitude and dependence remain, but such cannot be identified with religion, though religion does place those feelings in a larger context. Certain religions at least satisfy and encourage precisely because of their explanatory value. If one holds that emotion follows knowledge, then if I know there is a God, I will worship and I will order my life accordingly, and on such a view, I don't invent God because of a felt need for him. With these reflections behind us, 
I turn to a secondary theme in order to get a hold on the phenomena that we're calling religion. This has to do with the value of religion. It should be evident that individuals have a stake in the philosophical investigation of religion. That is, they need to know about it in a critical fashion in order to form supported and consistent judgments adopting or rejecting a mode of life which includes worship. An uncritical childhood acceptance must give way to a mature and reflective commitment if religion is to remain central in one's personal life. But let us shift the question from personal to civic value. Does it make a difference whether men believe in God and worship? Does society have a stake in the presence or absence of religion? Should government encourage, remain indifferent, or actively oppose religion? In answering such questions, obviously data drawn from history and from the special sciences are useful. But the debate about the civic worth of religion is largely a philosophical one. As in many other areas of inquiry, one cannot pass sound judgment without some knowledge of history. One can be provincial in time as well as in place. And a sure way to isolate oneself is to ignore history. The philosopher of religion must use all the material that is available to him, not only personal experience and history, but those special examinations of experience which issue from psychology, sociology, and even political science. The role of the special sciences should not be overstressed, though. More often than not, the untutored observations of mankind, that is, of common sense, when focused on the common features of the race, are more certain than the conclusions of the various social sciences. We need no science to tell us that religion is important in the lives of individuals, that communities, as well as individuals, can be moved by religious goals. One needs little learning to appreciate the effects of the once dominant role of Christianity in the West, from Byzantine times until today. The monuments are there. Consider Constantine's Hagia Sophia, or Suget's Saint-Denis outside of Paris, the medieval legacy in architecture, literature, science, and technology, not to mention philosophy and theology, is real and cannot be ignored. And similarly in the East, many of the most notable achievements of Indian and Oriental culture find their source in religious outlets. Yet in spite of this legacy, there is evidence that religion has grown thin in Western society that it no longer possesses the vitality which once animated its structures and customs. Some observers hold that secularization has all but eradicated religion as a cultural and moral force. It's been suggested that ours is the first society in the history of the West that has attempted to live without religion. This is not to say that one cannot find individuals who are religious, but this view does take as patent that religion has ceased to be a moral or cultural force in most of the West.
In the United States, it's been banned from formal education and made a private and subjective thing, a matter of taste. And that within a country that less than a century ago was manifestly Christian. This assessment is not to be taken lightly. In more than one way, we are children of the Enlightenment, Anglo-French and German. Views entertained in the 18th and 19th century drawing rooms on the continent and in the academies of that day have in our own lifetime entered the marketplace. Voltaire, for example, urged the eradication of Christianity from the world of higher culture, but he was willing to have it remain in the stables and in the scullery, lest the servant class steal. John Stuart Mill repudiated Christianity, but not the religion of humanity, which he thought from the point of view of the state a useful thing. Auguste Comte is perhaps a bit more benevolent in his attitude to Christian practice than either Voltaire or Mill, in spite of his denial of all metaphysical validity to religious belief, he was willing to accept it as a civil and moral good. And he was especially appreciative of the ritual traditions of Christianity. Emil Durkheim, a sociologist, 19th century, was not so positive. For him, a major task of the state is to free individuals from partial societies. Partial societies such as families, religious collectives, and labor and professional groups. Modern individualism, Durkheim thought, depends on preventing the absorption of individuals into secondary or mediating groups. In antiquity, religious and political institutions were but parts of a whole social fabric. Religion was part of an organized social life to which people in a community could not help but conform. It is, says Durkheim, only in modern circumstances that we have achieved a centralization of government that individuals acquire personal freedom. So to be free of the structures, the inherited structures, is to achieve personal freedom. Now you can compare that with your own experience within the current social order. In the 20th century, these notions were reflected in John Dewey, whom we mentioned earlier, he reflects both the views of Mill and Durkheim. Dewey himself had no use for religion or religious institutions, whatever roles they may have played in the past. Religion is an unreliable source of knowledge, certainly, and even in spite of contentions to the contrary of morality. Many of the values held dear by religious are worthy of consideration, and they should not be abandoned but a proper rationale ought to be sought for those deemed commendable. The thrust of Dewey's critique of religion is not merely to eliminate churches from political life, but to reduce their effectiveness as agencies in private life. Religion is deemed socially dangerous insofar as it gives practical credence to a divine law and attempts to mold personal and social conduct, I should say, in conformity with norms that look beyond the closed sphere of temporal society in its natural setting. Now these reflections may not have led us 
to a perfect definition of religion. I think what we've established so far is that we are looking at a very complex phenomenon. A complex phenomenon in the sense that it is generated out of a culture, out of a social lineage, so to speak, out of a tradition, and that it has repercussions both for the individual and for the social order. In the last part of this lecture, I was referring to attitudes that one forms about religion within the context of the larger social group that is the state. What should be the attitude of the state? Well, I was describing that more in the light of some philosophical considerations. Those philosophical considerations, I think, by pointing to implications, show the import of it all for personal as well as social behavior. So to more or less summarize, philosophy does not pronounce on the truth of religion. It observes, it describes, and analyzes religious phenomena as an object of study in itself. The philosopher examines the observed facts of religion as it's expressed in language and gesture as it's expressed in the doctrines assented to by the religious-minded. The philosopher, qua philosopher, whatever he may be in his personal life, suspends judgment regarding whether the truths that are subscribed to do in fact refer to a transhuman reality. The philosopher attempts to understand how the religious attitude is formed, its genesis. Religious perception precedes a religious movement. Some people talk about experience, but experiences come to be identified with a subjective state. Why is man religious? The profane world does in fact hide God, but upon inquiry it's seen that God does not hide himself completely from the things of nature Man reasons to the existence of God. Religion is consequent upon that. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.